Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. Thank you for listening. This is a special edition of Fraud Eat Strategy in which we will periodically delve deeply into a specific case. In 1998, very early in my post-FBI consulting career, I was a part of a team of investigators and forensic accountants brought into Bank Boston private banking office headquartered in New York. At the time we were retained, it was not immediately apparent that any crime had been committed. An audit had revealed some irregularities in connection with some private banking accounts. And I recall sitting in their Madison Avenue offices waiting for Ricardo Carrasco. Mr. Carrasco was a 20-year employee of the bank who was well-regarded by his superiors and beloved by his 27 employees. He was the head of Bank Boston's private banking unit and was supposed to take part in a meeting to help sort out the irregularities and locate the missing collateral. He was running late, and his supervisor, who had traveled down from Boston that morning for the meeting, was clearly on edge. The plan was for the initial meeting to be between Carrasco and his supervisor, and then Carrasco would join us in the conference room later and walk us through the account records together. After about 45 minutes, Carrasco called in with a flat tire and indicated he'd be arriving late. Minutes turned to hours, and there was no further contact with Carrasco. Not surprisingly, the anxiety level shot through the roof. By the end of the day, the bank was no longer looking at this as a record-keeping irregularity. We are now being asked to perform background investigations, establish surveillance at Carrasco's New York apartment, his East Hampton home, an antique store, and drill down deeply into the customer accounts to which the missing funds were attributable. After some painstaking review, a picture started to emerge. Oldemar Carlos Barrero Laborda was a prominent Argentine businessman, the owner of the Boca Juniors Professional Soccer Club, and the Argentine licensee of Lojack, a stolen vehicle recovery system that enabled for the tracking of stolen vehicles. When Argentine soccer legend Diego Maradona passed away recently, memories of this long-forgotten case came rushing back to me. In 1998, Maradona was the star of the Boca Juniors, a soccer legend, and perhaps less known as the payee in many checks drawn on the bank Boston accounts controlled by Barrero. Not many bank crimes are also missing persons cases, but this is not the typical bank fraud case. The Carrasco case is an amazing cross-border financial crime that's worth revisiting, and its lessons remain as relevant today as they were in 1998 when the fraud first erupted. Joining me today to discuss the Carrasco case is retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Stephen Garfinkel. In 1998, Steve was the squad supervisor of C2, the New York FBI's internal bank fraud squad. Welcome, Steve, and thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, Scott, and it's a uh, pleasure to be here today to talk about this uh, case. All right. Thanks, Steve. So tell us how you first got involved in the case, because you, you and I had, you know, sort of unbeknownst to us, we were kind of running in parallel. My first involvement with the case was when the head of corporate security for Bank Boston showed up at the FBI offices in New York 
called and said, hey, I'd like to come to talk to you about something. I said, well, come on up. We're always uh, willing to talk. And he started to uh, tell me the story about a missing banker, that this uh, guy, Ricardo Carrasco, was missing and wanted to know if we could provide any assistance. Came in and said, hey, uh, we'd like to talk to you about this missing banker. And I said, well, did he do something, some sort of crime that you wanted to report? And he said, no, he's just, at this point, he's just missing. And I told him that, you know, the FBI really doesn't do missing persons cases and that he should report it to the local NYPD police precinct where Carrasco lived in the East Village. And that's what they did. I said, listen, if something else, you know, comes up, give us a call. But we don't do missing persons cases. And he wouldn't provide any other, no further information at that point and wished him a good morning or good afternoon. And he left. Clearly, the bank at that point was pretty reluctant to sort of show their cards and to formally request the FBI's involvement for not just to find Carrasco, but to perhaps help solve the crime. Yeah. And it was it was really odd because. Quite frankly, I had never had a uh, contact like that before where the head of corporate security for any institution came in and said, hey, we have a missing banker. Can you help us? And not specifying that there was some other potentially nefarious activity. Not part of uh, C2's remit at the time? Absolutely not. So when Carrasco first went missing, we were there, a team of forensic accounts investigators were in the bank's offices every day scouring through bank statements and canceled checks and wire transfers. And ultimately, we were able to determine that there were 17 private banking accounts that were associated with what started to look like an illicit relationship between Marrero and Ricardo Carrasco. The Carrasco was an Uruguayan private banking manager who had kind of a lavish lifestyle, living in New York. And, you know, in contrast to the Barrero, who was a flashy and high-profile mercurial owner of the Boca Juniors and um, a pretty notorious guy then and now in Argentina. The accounts were each depository accounts, but they were kind of unusual because they were collateralized lines of credit, or so they were supposed to be. But as it turns out, Barrero was the beneficial owner of all 17, but his control over those accounts was in no way transparent to the bank. It was only through a combination of background investigations and the ongoing analysis of the money flows between and among the accounts that demonstrated that Barrero controlled each account. And while Carrasco is the name that's most prominently mentioned in media accounts associated with this case, it's really all about Aldemar Barrero. Steve, you told me something interesting about how this case first came to the bank's attention when a wealthy Argentine family alerted the bank. Can you explain how that came about? Yeah, sure. So as as we uh, understood it, Mr. Carrasco, was, uh, he'd been out on a mandatory leave. And you know, the mandatory, two-week mandatory leave is something that I believe actually the regulators have made it a requirement in financial institutions where if an employee is in a position where they're handling funds, they have to take uh, two weeks uninterrupted leave in which they cannot have you know, any contact with the, with the bank you know, or customers. Or, you know, they shouldn't be doing any, any business at all. And it's a basic 
kind of control to make sure somebody is not committing a long-term fraud. And in this particular instance, what Mr. Carrasco had done was he was controlling a series of accounts for a wealthy South American family. I believe they were Argentine. And the family had a number of brothers. And what Mr. Carrasco did was he created a fictitious brother. And that fictitious brother had uh, loans that were secured by, they were collateralized by CDs. And well, one of these, C, and the CDs were owned by the real brothers. One of these CDs was maturing. And while Mr. Carrasco was on his leave, his executive assistant took the initiative of calling the brother, one of the real brothers, and said, hey, what do you want us to do with this CD that's maturing for, he or she gave the name, of the fake brother? And they said, who is this brother? We don't know about this brother. And that's when the questions arose and the investigation began within Bank Boston. I guess you figured they they wouldn't notice there were so many of them. Yeah, we were told there were three real brothers. Their names all started with J, something like Jorge and Juan and Jose. And then they created a, a fourth brother. That fourth brother was fictitious. So during the time between when Bank Boston first contacted the FBI and then when this fake brother scenario first kind of forced their hand, formally requested the FBI to investigate. It was about three weeks later. The internal investigation that you know, I was a part of was well underway. And, you know, we had already pretty much concluded that very little of the collateral that had been attributed to the 17 accounts that Barrero controlled was legitimate. It was either, as you said, collateral of unrelated bank customers, which was being misrepresented as belonging to the Barrero accounts, or it was just completely fabricated. And in the months preceding when the case uh, first came to light, Barrero had drawn down all of the lines of credit to their max, leaving Bank Boston with a potential exposure of $73 million. So while the internal investigation was going on, there were daily phone calls with the bank's compliance and legal counsel, and several members of the investigative team, including myself, were participating in the call. And this was going on before you guys got formally involved. And there was a conversation and discussion about getting corporate security involved. And I remember just being pretty surprised because there were so many people on this call, as you might expect. This is a lot of hysteria and reigning supreme. And I was just remember so surprised. Why, why wouldn't corporate security be involved from the get-go? As that's, that's kind of their skill set. But then what was really even more surprising is something, I can't exactly remember what was being suggested. And then someone reacted to what uh, what was being said and don't call security because those guys will tell the FBI. And again, I was just kind of scratching my head thinking, wouldn't that be a good thing? <laughs> call me crazy. But you know, you have to actually take into consideration 1998. I have to tell you, you know, when I first transitioned from the FBI to the private sector in 1996, I very quickly concluded that whatever dollar amount attributed to white collar crime in general was probably 5% of actual given the default setting that a lot of people had, which is don't disclose. This is pre-Sarbanes-Oxley. 
and many white collar crimes went unreported or underreported. So this wasn't anything that unusual in terms of mindset. It's still kind of, it was still a little shocking. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. When we uh, spoke earlier about the case, I had no idea that that conversation occurred where people within the bank were saying, don't tell corporate security. And when that corporate security director came to, initially came to see me, he might really have not known the full scope of what was going on. He could have been tasked to, hey, go see the FBI, tell them that a banker is missing. So he was being kept in the dark. So that is quite possible. I mean, one of the things I want to point out is, you know, when a a financial institution is a victim of fraud and they know who the perpetrator is, they have a statutory requirement to report that crime to FinCEN within 30 days. You know, in essence, the bank knew what happened and decided we're going to wait that 30 days before they report it. Yeah, it was a pretty shocking glimpse into the organizational culture that existed at the time. But not that it's necessarily a good thing, but you know that, that unfortunately was just a that was a default setting in a lot of organizations. It was certainly not anything unique to, to the bank. When you first got involved in the investigation, when, when you heard informally from the bank, were there any red flags apparent at the outset that you know maybe smacked of the unusual? Well, some of the red flags would be you had somebody who was running this kind of satellite office who everybody loved. You know, all the employees, they loved the guy. And he kind of did things. and Nobody would question what he did. It was almost like they found out about this fraud by accident where his assistant made this phone call trying to be the good assistant and help him with no idea that she wasn't looking to a fraud. And the sense of trust that, and this is not the only case we had. I mean, I don't want to say it's common, but it it's one of the red flags you'll see in some of these frauds when they're perpetrated by somebody who's a relatively high up in an organization, is that they are trusted and their authority is really not questioned. Well, the other thing that so often when, you know, and, and you've probably been an instructor on a lot of these trainings as well, when you try to, you know, convey to people on how to be on the alert for fraud and how to recognize red flags of fraud, one of the most commonly observed frauds or red flags of fraud rather is someone who never takes vacation. Oh, absolutely. And hence the two week mandatory leave. Right. And it, it's funny, I have had numerous investigations that incidents that triggered the discovery of the investigation was either a vacation or an illness of the main person that was orchestrating the fraud and they just weren't able to continue to maintain the smoke and mirrors that were concealing the fraud because they weren't there. Absolutely. Especially the unexpected illness. I've had a number of cases where that was the trigger for exposing a uh, long-term ongoing fraud. The other thing that was unusual about the bank that, you know, at the time I didn't really think too much about was that, you know, here was a private banking arm of a major financial institution at the time. Now, you know, kind of absorbed and absorbed again over the years through some acquisitions. But the 
customer base was not domestic U.S. persons. It was predominantly high net worth individuals in Argentina, Uruguay, and then a sprinkling of other Central and South American individuals, which at the time I'm kind of scratching my head, why is this in New York? Why wouldn't this be in Miami or Sao Paulo or someplace more convenient for the customers? Yeah, I, that was sort of strange. You know, I don't know how the bank was structured. Looking back on it, I, I thought it was kind of odd that you had this kind of small office in New York dealing with the Latin American clients. I have to tell you, at the time, this was in the 90s, this still happened. I think of another bank where we had Latin American clients and they were being handled out of New York. Today, that would generally happen in uh, Miami. So that is different. So part of what my team had been retained to do was investigate Barrero in in Argentina and Uruguay. So while my investigator was on the ground, in Argentina, Barrero, who was a kind of a unpredictable and you know, someone prone to bouts of temper, reportedly got into a heated argument with one of his subordinates, and then in the midst of the argument, pulled a pulled a gun out of his desk drawer and shot at the guy as he was fleeing Barrero's office, striking him in the butt. And, you know, I'm laughing, but I got to tell you, my investigator who related this story to me wasn't as amused as I was when hearing that story because, you know, he was on the ground solo, no security detail and uh, no color of official right. He was a private citizen, but he did learn a few interesting things about Pereira while he was down in Argentina and Uruguay. So at the time, the president of Argentina was Carlos Menem, and Menem was godfather to one of of Barrera's children, or at least that is what Barrera would have people believe. There was certainly a close relationship, and they, they were pictured together in public settings. They were uh, pictured together in, at private parties. Barrera was also the Argentinian licensee of Lojack, which is a product that's kind of gone all by the wayside. But back then, it was a very successful vehicle anti-theft system. And Lojack in the U.S. is a device that was in a car and sent a signal to the nearest police department when it was activated. Somebody, you know, said, hey, my car is stolen. And that then enabled the police to locate the vehicle and recover it. But in Argentina, it was that model, the U.S. model wouldn't work because they didn't feel that the Argentine police would respond in the same timely manner as police departments in the U.S. So in order for Barrero to be able to successfully run the LOJAC, operation in Argentina, he had to maintain a large fleet of vehicles and aircraft. And it was Barrero's vehicles and aircraft that would locate the stolen vehicles, which you know comes into play later in this case. And that's the reason why I'm going down this rabbit hole a little bit. But the investigation also revealed that Barrero had been barred from banking in the Argentine banking sector between 92 and 96 because of his frequent use of bad checks. Several well-placed sources told us that Barrero was the head of a large car theft ring operating out of the tribe border area where Argentina, Paraguay, and Brazil meet, which is a lawless and continues to be a lawless part of the world, which is it's rife with a wide range of criminality, narcotics trafficking, firearms, sales, counterfeit pharmaceuticals, stolen cars, and money laundering. So the thing about this, though, is this wasn't a well-kept secret. Barrero was widely known in Argentina and Uruguay for these types of activities. 
And it sort of makes you wonder, you know, we're talking about red flags, is what did the bank do to to vet this guy as a customer? What did Lojack do to vet this guy as a customer? Well, it's clear they didn't have their know your customer policies in place. No, I think they know your customers. Yeah, yeah, I know them. That's about it. Right. I know the customer, and that's why I will hide the beneficial uh, ownership. Yeah, well, certainly any money laundering programs have become far more robust than they were back in 1998. So when you were investigating Bank Broad Bureau overseeing, also, you know, in your, your current role investigating, overseeing investigations in one of the largest, most complex financial institutions in the world, you certainly have a, a frame of reference on how things are and how they should be. So he had accounts through nominees, Barrera did, um, an unusually close relationship with his private banker and into which no other bank official had been introduced. He was a close associate of the then president of Argentina, reputed to be involved in organized crime in the tri-border area. Could someone as notorious as Barrero slip through the cracks now, like they did in the 90s? When And what are these findings serve to remind everyone about the importance of investigating counterparties? Yeah, I think it's always possible for somebody to slip through the cracks. I mean, controls are generally much more robust today. And in order to bring somebody into the bank, establish a relationship with somebody who had a background like Barrero, it would be much more difficult. These KYC practices are, are, I keep using the word robust, but they are. It's not to say that it couldn't happen. From time to time, it does happen when those instances occur. Inevitably, they make it into the press. The media loves these stories. So it does happen from time to time. So these things can happen, but the controls are much stronger. Anytime you have a situation, one of the things that was unique about this, the Carrasco case, was his relationship with Barrero. And you mentioned it. He was almost out there operating on an island by himself, Carrasco, with very little oversight. I don't think you would see that today, at least at most of the large institutions. Maybe at some of the smaller kind of boutique banks, you might see this. It might be easier to occur. I think that for the most part, banks are much more attuned to this type of scheme. The money, the AML infrastructure at the banks is much more sophisticated than it was 20, 25 years ago. Oh, without a doubt, I, I couldn't agree more. So criminal cases are, as you know, in personam, meaning there needs to be a criminal defendant for them to continue through the criminal docket. And with Carrasco having disappeared and no meaningful cooperation between Argentina and the U.S. at the time regarding Barrero, the criminal case wasn't going to be able to proceed to a successful conclusion until or, or unless Carrasco was captured. And he remained an international fugitive for a period of time. So yeah. you guys had the case open for a while. Yeah, I mean, after that bank security director, after his first time he came to see us, about three weeks later, he shows up again. And it was kind of funny. I remember he was sitting in my office and I was like, well, you want to tell me the rest of the story? And then he proceeds to tell us how they knew something was wrong. You know, they wanted to question him about this missing money. He was returning from leave and they said, hey, could you show up 10 a.m.? We want to meet with you in the office. And I think somebody had 
flown in from Boston, where the bank was headquartered, down to speak to Carrasco. Carrasco called shortly before the meeting. says, oh, I got a dental emergency. I'll be there. I'll be delayed. Well, he was so delayed, he was never seen again by anybody from the bank. We had some information that he was seen and traveling from his apartment in New York out to the Hamptons. And I recall that we started surveilling a car going out there, but turned out it was not Carrasco. We did a search at his apartment, which was, a I recall it being a very nice uh, apartment. He had some nice artwork in there. We were not able to locate him. The last we heard was that he had boarded a plane in Newark and made his way out to California and then was last tracked getting on to a private jet in Tijuana. And that was the last we had heard of him. Yeah, that's uh, the reason why I I made mention of Barrero's fleet of aircraft furtherance of the Lojack license arrangement in Argentina. Certainly, Barrero would have a, a rooting interest in Carrasco never being seen again, but it certainly leaves an, an open question. Well, I left you with that punchline, Scott. I always thought that he got on that plane and believed that the, the tail number was a Barrero plane. And Carrasco, he could have gone out, sort of like got out the window with a door, uh, Goldfinger did, and never to be heard from again. This definitely has the plot of a Bond movie, right? He, he made an unscheduled stop. That's you know, uh, really a crazy thing. I mean, I, I know you've been involved in a lot of bank fraud cases, and as have I, but this one still is one for the books. So the bank found itself in a pretty uh, tough situation weren't able to recover money from Barrero uh, or much, certainly nothing uh, approximating of their loss. So they had instead submitted an insurance claim under their fidelity policy, which is an insurance policy that protects policyholders from losses as a result of crimes on the part of their employees. And the bank was eventually able to recover over $50 million from their insurance carrier. I often think of one of my favorite instructors at the FBI Academy, this guy, Roger DePew, who was one of the original members of the Behavioral Science Unit, the group that profiles and hunts serial killers, as I'm sure most of you. And he was fond of saying, especially Agent DePew, that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. For me, certainly, it's a truism that has played out over the course of my career uh, over and over again. And I did a little research on Barrero in preparing for this conversation. And he apparently continues to command the attention of law enforcement and court scandal. As recently as 2017, he was under house arrest wearing a monitoring device, which back then we used to refer to them as LoJack. Yes, uh, that's right. <laughs> which kind of made me laugh. In connection with an organized crime case and the importation fraud, which was referred to in the papers down in Argentina as the Container Mafia. And the case involved a large-scale customs duty fraud matter in which the contents of ocean-going freight containers were being mischaracterized as something far less valuable than was actually in the, in the container, leading to the underpayment of tens of millions of dollars of customs duties. And then ultimately, the case snared 60 business people, including Barrero, and several corrupt Argentine customs officials. Now, it's unclear from the media, 
from my command of Spanish, if Barrera has yet been sentenced in this matter or if he remains under house arrest. Uh, but nevertheless, 22 years later, this guy is still running afoul of the law, but he's also living and breathing. So witnesses painted a picture of Barrera as someone who was kind of larger than life, charismatic, intimidating, and sometimes terrifying. And those that knew both men speculated that Barrero romanced, intimidated, extorted, and then ultimately corrupted Carrasco to establish an enormous line of credit with the bank with no risk to his assets if he were to default. And there's no reason to think Carrasco derived nearly the financial benefit from the scheme that Barrero did. Instead, it just appeared that he was used manipulated, and ultimately discarded once Barrero had no further use for him. So the open question is, where did Carrasco go? Why did he never come forward and put the blame squarely on Barrero? Because that would be the reasonable thing to do. Well, that's that's not a simple question. I mean, it's like, why do people commit fraud? You know, what's their motivation? Well, he was corrupted by Barrero, as you point out. But, you know, one thing that was clear was that Carrasco was somebody who was, as we understood it, was living a very lavish lifestyle. He had expensive tastes and he was getting paid well, I guess, by, you know, bank standards. But he was, had an insatiable lifestyle and, you know, liked to have access to, you know, unlimited funds. And I mean, that's something you see time and time again in these types of cases are people living a lifestyle well above their means. One of the things when I was supervising that internal bank fraud squad is we would have a, it was almost like a series of cases. Every year we had one of the, usually a couple of cases from some bank where there was somebody involved in private banking, some wealth manager who would get involved in a similar type scheme and not to the extent of Carrasco, but you know, if something went went on long enough, it ended up like Carrasco. But when you have this ability, you want to live beyond your means, and then you have somebody like Barrero comes in the picture. Like, we don't know who reached out to who first. I don't think we know that. But I think that sort of, you know, explains part of it, this desire to, to lead this. You know, I want to buy whatever I want, whenever I want, and, you know, spend money with no uh, boundaries. Well. I think particularly private bankers, right? They make a nice living, but they're never going to have the kind of wealth that their high net worth clients have. And it's intoxicating, right? Yes. They become so enamored of the lifestyle and the wealth and the multiple homes and traveling by private jet and all of the trappings of extreme wealth. There comes a point where they, for some, they start to rationalize behavior because they're every bit as deserving in their minds of that kind of lifestyle as their as their customers. I agree with that 100%. 100%. They want to live like their clients. Certainly seems to be something that was informing some of the behavior here. Steve, this has been great. I really enjoyed talking about this. It's, there's nothing more exciting than two old agents sharing a war story or two. And uh, I really appreciate you, you joining me today for this for this episode. Well, thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. Anytime. It's always fun to talk about these cases. And, and when you, you had reached out to me, I definitely remembered this case. That was former FBI special agent and bank fraud expert Steve Garfinkel. Stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. And if you have an idea for a topic or guest that you'd like to hear from on a future episode, 
email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening.